So I'll be reading two passages for us today. Uh, the first one is from Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16. So Matthew 28 from verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. And the next passage is taken from Acts, Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. Acts chapter 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers came, began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with its inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. 
He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Thank you, Kirsty. Hello, everyone. It is great to have you here with us uh, this morning. And uh, let me add my welcome to Adrian's. I'm really glad that you're here. As we continue this series that we've called Encapsulate, um, because what we're trying to do in this series is to encapsulate and sum up the marks of NCA Church, to describe who we would love to be with God's help, uh, in some ways as a better version of ourselves, as a more mature in Christ version of ourselves. And today, the topic that we're thinking about is us being a people who are lovingly engaged in gospel mission to the world. I do admit, though, to being slightly uh, cautious about this topic. If you were here last week, you would have heard Foxy remind us that there are just three words. One of them was hyphenated, remember, so it's really four words, but we'll roll with three. Uh, three words that you need to say to make the typical Christian feel a little bit guilty or even a lot guilty. What were they? Bible reading, prayer, and evangelism. And, and so, you know, two weeks ago we did Bible reading, last week we did prayer. Uh, I guess with mission today, we've hit the trifecta and we can get all of our guilt out of the way nice and early in the year. Of course, that is not what we are trying to do today, nor in this series. Our goal in, in these sermons is not to make us feel guilty, but rather to try and get us excited about the same things God is excited about. And to get us, to help us prioritise the same things that God prioritizes and to help our hearts kind of long for ourselves and for one another and for our whole church for the very same things that God longs for on our behalf and although I hope these things are all true for every topic that we will look at in this series I think in some ways they are most truly true of our topic today is we think about us being a people who are lovingly engaged in gospel mission to the world because when all is said and done what after all is the bible but the written down record of all that god has lovingly done in his mission to the world in his mission to save a people who will be his very own, him as their God, they as his people, living under his good rule and enjoying his blessing, eager to do what is good. Now, granted, it's not like that everywhere in the Bible, is it? Not Genesis 1 and 2, for example. That very good paradise that God made in the beginning, abundant in life just splendid and and human beings as the very pinnacle of all that God had made both male and female created in God's image uh, not just by him but for him and and intended for intimate friendship with him but then in Genesis 3 human sin and rebellion enters the world and it spoils that which previously was only very good and yes, we do continue to bear that inestimably high privilege of being made both male and female in the image of God. And certainly God, for his part, is utterly committed and continues to be committed 
for our good. But you see, now that human sin has entered the frame and with sin a deep break in our relationship with God so that we naturally now sit under his judgment, then yes, the rest of the Bible has necessarily become a great rescue story. A great story of God's mission to save people, to save sinners. And it starts in many ways with a promise that God made to a man called Abraham. It was a promise that was soaked through with the language of blessing. God's plan was to bless Abraham and to bless Abraham's descendants and through Abraham's descendants, eventually to bless all peoples on earth. And although by their sin, Abraham's descendants continued to prove their unworthiness of God's promises, yet because of the faithful love of God, they never strayed far from his blessing. And eventually, you follow the story through far enough, if we had the time, we could just start reading from Genesis 3. It would take us a long time, but we could do it. But you follow the story through far enough and you come to one particular descendant of Abraham and and he really did prove himself worthy of the promises of God, the Son of God who took on flesh and became a man and died on the cross, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And, And the reason he was so worthy of God's promises is because he himself never sinned. And in him, therefore, God's mission to save sinners finds its great focal point and hero. And and so the way that the the New Testament talks about it, it's actually that promise God first made to Abraham to bless all nations on earth. Well, now it's through Jesus Christ that that promise finds its fulfilment as people come to trust him and to love him and to serve him and to obey him and and to honour him. And it's the great story of the Bible. And, and not just the Bible, it's a great story of human history. But you see, having laid that foundation, uh, two critically important observations can now be made, and, and you'll see them there on your outline. First of all, the mission to save people, the mission of the gospel, in other words, is God's mission. It always has been, it always will be. The intention, the initiative, the promises, the power, the, the love the mercy, the faithfulness, the grace, all his. The mission to save people is God's mission. And I think it's vital that we hold on to this truth because I think it's what helps to keep us from despair at our failures. And I think it's what helps keep us from guilt over our lack of boldness. And I think it's what helps us Uh, stay away from embarrassment at the foolishness of what we proclaim about Jesus and I think it's what keeps us from giving up when we seem to find no fruit it's this is God's mission We, we must remember that on the flip side though I think it's also this truth that will help us to persevere in praying about gospel mission with both urgency and confidence. I I think it's this truth that will help us to persevere in speaking boldly about Jesus because we know that whatever happens next is in God's hands, not ours. It's this truth, I think, that will keep us uh, being hopeful and optimistic about the saving power of the gospel because really, if God has purposed to save people, is there anything that we could do or even anything that we could fail to do. 
which would keep God from accomplishing his purpose. The mission to save people is God's mission. Uh, Alongside that, though, is the equally important observation that God uses his people to accomplish his work. In the terms of God's promise to Abraham, through you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. Now, I take it it didn't have to be this way. And after all, if God can create all things that have been created by a few powerfully chosen words, presumably he could have done the same thing again when it comes to rescuing a saved people, but God didn't do that. Instead, he chose to use the family of Abraham, undeserving though they were, and he determined that his intention to save people would be worked out through them, and so God uses his people to accomplish his saving work. Now, precisely what that looks like in practice changes depending where we are in the Bible story. So what it looks like for Israel wandering around the the kind of wilderness of Sinai, that's very different to what it looks like when they're in the land under the kingship of David. And, And that's very different again to what it looks like when they're actually out of the land over in Babylon in exile. What it looks like for God to use his people to bring about his saving purposes, it changes at different points of the Bible story. On this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, one of the clearest places where we find out what it means for God to use his people to accomplish his saving work is in those closing verses of Matthew's Gospel, those well-known verses of Matthew's Gospel that we read before. I say well-known, although I've recently been challenged by a friend of mine to see that they have sometimes been not as well understood as they perhaps could have been, including maybe even by your preacher today. Uh, The setting is in the days after Jesus' resurrection, when he came to speak to his disciples at Galilee and to tell them what they should do next. And so again, on the outline, you can see three things uh, that we'll work through briefly. First of all, the part we play in God's mission to save. Verse 19, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. It's a command, isn't it? This is not just something that Jesus wants or desires, and certainly it's much more than just a gentle suggestion. Jesus commands his disciples to make disciples. He commands his people to call others to follow him just as they do. They are to do this by going because it just stands to reason that if disciples are to be made of all nations, then it will certainly require leaving the physical boundaries of Israel at some point. They are to do this by baptising in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which may have less to do with immersing people in physical water than it does to do with immersing them in the faith that is in the one God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And they are to do this by teaching everything uh, that Jesus has commanded so that the new disciples themselves might also begin to obey Jesus in everything. But you see, making disciples of all nations, that is the part that we play in God's mission to save. Okay, what about the basis of the part that we play in God's mission? Well, that's verse 18, isn't it? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Uh, It's so important we see the the unbreakable 
connection between this verse and the ones that follow it. Um, lots of you know I, I enjoy uh, writing kind of memory verse songs. I wrote one uh, on this passage a few years ago. I now regard it as a complete failure because I only did verses 19 and 20. In other words, I got the command, but I missed the context, and yet the context is the basis for understanding the command. Uh, there's a Christian writer called Kevin DeYoung, and he puts it this way. The mission that Jesus is about to give is based exclusively and entirely on his authority. There can only be a mission imperative because there is first this glorious indicative. We go because he reigns. But you see, it's also this kind of heaven and earth authority of the Lord Jesus that explains why now the mission seems to just have no geographical limits. It's the ends of the earth. It's all nations. And back in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent the disciples out on mission, it was only to the lost sheep of Israel. In fact, they were expressly forbidden from going to the Gentiles, to people who weren't Jewish by birth. But now the floodgates are open and disciples are to be made of all nations simply as a reflection of this universal heaven and earth authority that Jesus now has by his resurrection from the dead. Uh, some of you will know that the kind of famous quote from Abraham Kuyper, who was around the 1900s, he was the, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, and he wrote that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. To which Jesus, here in Matthew 28, would utter a resounding, Amen. Do you begin to feel the weight of verse 18? Just that immense weight of verse 18? So the part we play in God's mission is we make disciples. The basis of the part we play is the unrivaled heaven and earth authority of the Lord Jesus. What about the message we proclaim? I think for me, this may well be the, the key thing that I haven't seen as clearly in the past as I perhaps should have. Because I think for this too, we need to look to verse 18. In other words, the, the universal heaven and earth authority of Jesus is not simply the basis of his command that we go out to make disciples of all nations. It is also the very message we proclaim. Do you want to know what the message of the gospel is in an absolute nutshell? I mean, I'm by no means the first person to put it like this, uh, but really four words is all we need. Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, that's the gospel, isn't it? Jesus Christ is Lord. It's an idea, a proposition, if you like, about Jesus Christ. He is Lord. If we wanted to expand it a bit, here are seven words from Peter in Acts chapter 10 where he's talking to the Gentile Cornelius, the Gentile centurion. You know the message of the gospel sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. We could crank it out to 12 words from Acts chapter 2 where Peter declares that by raising him from the dead, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
Uh, we could go to 24 words from Paul in Romans... This is the last one I'll do, I promise. We could go to 24 words from Paul in Romans 1 when he explains that the gospel is about God's Son who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see the pattern? The message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And therefore, when we are seeking to share the gospel with people, we are not inviting them to make Jesus their Lord. Having Jesus as Lord is not something that anyone chooses or decides. It's just the way things are. It's the nature of reality. It's something that God has done already by raising him from the dead. You think of all the people that we know between us, if we were to kind of chart every single person that between us this morning we know, not a single one of them does not already have Jesus Christ as Lord. Although many of them may not yet recognise it. What we are doing when we share the gospel is we are declaring to people that they are already under the Lordship of Christ. And, and we're calling on them to recognise the fact in the only way that is appropriate, which is by repentance and faith. That they too might come to share in the glorious salvation and rescue that God has now made available through the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that they too might come back into that intimate friendship with God for which they were always destined and for which God has always been working since Genesis 3. Here's how uh, Peter Jensen puts it, uh, previous Archbishop of Sydney. Uh, one of the characteristics that distinguishes the gospel from moral teaching is that the gospel provokes a crisis of decision in its hearers. Uh, it seeks a fundamental shift of allegiance the proper response of all humankind, Jew or Greek, is to turn to God in repentance and to have faith in our Lord Jesus. I think all of that helps make sense of the way that Paul ends the sermon that he preached in Athens, which we read about before from Acts chapter 17, which is really one of the most kind of blanket categorical, absolute statements that we find anywhere in Scripture about how people are to respond appropriately to the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so often this sermon is, is really held up as an example of Paul, how, how Paul kind of modulates the, the way he explains the gospel depending on who he's talking to. And, and to a degree, that's right, this sermon is very different from the way that he spoke to the synagogue Jews in Acts chapter 13. For them, lots of Old Testament quotes. For these Athenian philosophers, not so many. But you get to the end of the sermon and, and it's just irrespective of human culture. Because verse 30, in the past God overlooked such ignorance to do with idolatry and the worship of idols, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed and he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Can you see the same logic that we've seen in all the passages we've looked at so far? Because he's been raised from the dead, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is ruler. He is king. He is the universal judge. He is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. And therefore turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now with that conclusion in mind, let's go back to the start of the sermon and see what kicked it all off at the beginning and what really gets Paul going. And there's just two words we need to zoom in on in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He was greatly distressed. greatly distressed to find people worshipping idols rather than the creator. Greatly distressed to find these people who clearly had plenty of religious instincts in them. But to find that they were living in complete ignorance of the fact that because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Lord Jesus, therefore he alone is the one to be worshipped and served and glorified and honoured and obeyed and trusted and loved. He was greatly distressed. He was provoked in his inmost being. And of course, the obvious question for you and I in all this is whether that's how we feel about the idolatry and unbelief that is all around us in Sydney. Are we greatly distressed by the spiritual blindness of the many? Are we greatly distressed by the rampant materialism that takes people away from any notion of life that exists beyond the realms of what is merely physical? Even though virtually every eulogy at almost every funeral of an unbeliever I've ever attended screams out that what the scriptures say is true, God has set eternity in the hearts of people. Nearly every eulogy screams that out. We, we want eternity. We don't actually want materialism. But it's so rampant all around us and we just breathe that air and it blinds us to the notion of life beyond what is merely physical. Are we deeply distressed that far from recognising Jesus as the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, there are many people who seem perfectly comfortable to use the name of Jesus as a byword or just as a punchline in some joke? Are we greatly distressed? When we see the one who is Lord of all, not treated as if he is Lord of all. Shamefully for myself, I'm not as greatly distressed as often as I should be, nor to the degree that I should be. I wonder if you relate to that. Oh, that God would work in us, in our inmost being, transforming us from within, from our hearts, 
so that we are greatly distressed and we are lovingly engaged in gospel mission to the world. Yes, for the sake of obedience to Jesus' command, but yes, also for the sake of those who don't yet acknowledge Jesus' lordship. That they might repent and believe while there is still time and they would meet Jesus as Lord and Saviour rather than Lord and Judge. But most of all, would God work in us for the sake of the Lord to whom belong all praise and glory and honour and power and wisdom and might now and forever. Uh, Let me finish with what I hope will be a couple of practical suggestions to help us grow in this together. First of all, uh, you know, would you read a book on this topic uh, of gospel mission and evangelism? Um, uh, If this is an area where most of us feel like we need some help and a little bit of encouragement, and I suspect it is for lots of us, then there is plenty of stuff out there to help. Would you commit to reading a book? Maybe even go, once a year I'm going to read a book on this topic, just keep it on my agenda. And, uh, and get some help from people that have kind of done their hard yards before us and can help us think about how to do it. Um, during the week, I, I bought a bunch of copies of this book, Honest Evangelism by Rico Tice, uh, Christianity Explored. And um, there's a couple of them. There's two of them at the desk at the back in the foyer. Uh, my hope is that they won't be there when I leave the building to go home for lunch. I would love them to be taken. If you want to read a book that will get you thinking about evangelism, this is a great one. It's short, that's good. Uh, It's also honest about the challenges that we face, especially in our times today. It's also practical about how we can make progress given the challenges that we face. And best of all, I think it's got a wonderful gospel heart and everything it says flows out from the gospel. Um, If you take a copy, do read it. Just put it on your shelf. I know that's tempting. I I find that tempting. Don't, Don't just put it on the shelf. Make sure you read it. Maybe put your name in the front. And uh, perhaps what you could do is after you read it, find someone else here at church, give it to them, remind them not to put it on their shelf, but to read it. And once they're done, to put their name in the front. Imagine if, I don't know, in X number of months' time, someone were to be given the book and they open it up and find, you know, the names of 15 other people from this congregation who've read it before them. And, And the kind of conversations that we could have with each other, having kind of thought this stuff through together. That'd be a great outcome, wouldn't it? We'd just encourage each other. But commit to reading a book. I'd love to not have these two books there there when I leave. Say, read a book. Second, let's commit to making this a regular subject of our prayers. It just seems a no-brainer to me. I'm not a fantastic student of church history, and I'm not as fantastic as I should have been when I was at Moore College, but it seems a no-brainer to me that you kind of look back in church history, and every time there's been any kind of serious spiritual revival, do you know how it began? Godly men and women began to pray. And and they prayed that God would be at work in them and transforming them in their inmost being and and giving them new loves and new zeals and new passions. And and so pray, let's pray, let's commit to praying for ourselves and for each other that God would be at work in us, in our hearts, transforming us from within, that we might feel the same kind of deep distress that Paul felt. At the grave danger that people are in until they turn to Christ and the terrible inappropriateness of the Lord Jesus not being honoured in the way that he deserves. But of course, let's commit to praying for those we know who don't yet know and love and serve Jesus as we do. For if the mission to save people is primarily God's, it's that old adage, how could we ever speak to to people about God if we haven't spoken first to God about people? 
So I pray that God would be at work preparing people's hearts to receive the message of the gospel with joy. Surely that is a prayer God loves to answer. And of course, you know, let's pray that God would give to us boldness and courage to speak. You read through the book of Acts, you always feel like those early Christians were just so kind of gung-ho and courageous. But of course, in Acts chapter 4, that's what they prayed for. They prayed that God would give them boldness to speak. And so we ought to do the same, that we would commend Christ at every opportunity. Uh, Third, let's invest time in relationships with those who aren't yet disciples. I'm sure that for many of us, this is one of the great challenges we face because we just feel so constantly busy uh, with family and with work and with church. and, And sometimes as a consequence, we find ourselves not spending much quality time with people who aren't Christians. But friends, if we are going to make any serious progress in this area, and if we are going to grow at being lovingly engaged in gospel mission to the lost, then we are going to need to change this. And for lots of us, that'll probably mean structuring something into our week so that just, uh, you know, every week uh, or every month or something comes into our diary and, and it just creates the opportunity for us. It sets aside the opportunity for us. Join a sporting team, uh, become a member of a choir, sign up for a book club, uh, do some regular community volunteering. It's all sorts of opportunities. But, but invest in relationships with people who aren't yet disciples. Now, Honestly, if you just go, I am so full, my diary, I, the thought of trying to add some new commitment in there, that just, you know, does my head in. I, um, I do honestly have a lot of sympathy with that position. Okay, could you work out a way of doing something different in one of the commitments that you've already got? Maybe. If you do park run on Saturday mornings, why not start a pattern of going out for coffee after the run? If, if you've got a school drop-off, uh, you know, could you find some of the parents that are on that same school run as you? And, you know, once every other week, head out, you know, meet up for an hour at a cafe. Now, basically, coffee is the key. No, it's not. It's not the key at all. Uh, I've got a friend, though. I mean, this is how it worked out for him. Uh, he's a deep thinker. He, uh, he reads a lot of philosophy. And, um, and back when he was at university, you know, read lots of the philosophers in their original kind of situation and, and setting and all that kind of stuff. And at his workplace, he met another manager and um, she was Indian, she had a Hindu background, she was, as a result, kind of fascinated with Western philosophy. And so every two months, uh, they would book in a lunch together and they would talk philosophy, they would chat about Descartes and Spinoza and all these kind of guys. And, um, you know, over the time, there were opportunities for my friend and his wife to have this colleague to their house for dinner and, you know, the relationship grew. After seven years of all that happening, quite unexpectedly, really, not quite with any deliberate planning on his part, but last year, uh, this colleague began to do Christianity Explored with him and his wife. It it wasn't necessarily where he thought it would go seven, eight years ago. He just lovingly invested in a relationship that was around him. For him, he's super busy. Work is a context. He's got relationships all around the place. He wanted to think, how can I use that? Well, I've got to eat lunch. They've got to eat lunch. That's a match. Let's figure out how we use that. And every two months was what it took. After seven or eight years, what amazing progress for the sake of the gospel. It's a great story of what can happen as we find and create opportunities lovingly to invest in relationships with those who 
are not yet disciples. Finally, let's strive to get better at inviting and um, at inviting people, I guess I'm thinking in some ways, particularly here to church. I love the culture that has built up over the years at NCA Youth, where every term, there's a couple of weeks, they, they do BAM nights. Lots of us already know what that stands for. What's BAM stand for? Bring a mate. See, it's easy. Like, we know what that stands for. It's just thoroughly normalised that process of inviting friends in to hear about Jesus in the context of meaningful relationships. It's brilliant, isn't it? Uh, somehow, as adults, though, we, we just become very timid about doing this and we find it hard. Uh, but I'm sure that there's stuff we can learn from our youth in this and I, I reckon we can probably support each other in this and, and I am sure that in fact if we did this more often we may be surprised at how well it goes. And in some ways, humanly speaking, in terms of the factors that we can actually have an influence over, there may not be that many other ways that we would see our congregations grow. And yet isn't that what we would love to see as the gospel continues to bear fruit? I wonder whether there are people that you have at times kind of considered inviting to church and what might you be able to do in the lead up to our pre-Easter mission this year that would help you follow through on that thought? Uh, there is uh, so much for us to think about in this area, but I'm going to I'm going to finish with some verses from Philippians. As he talks about, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about his goal for the Philippian church. I hope this will tie together lots of what we've thought about. Will you pray with me? Oh, sorry, let me read Philippians and then I'll leave some prayer. Philippians 1, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that uh, you, ever since human sin came into the world, you have been on a mission to save people and we thank you that that comes to its great climax in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you've brought us to a knowledge that he, by death and resurrection, is Lord of all and he has all authority in heaven and on earth. So, Father, we do pray that you would help us to proclaim that news with urgency and with deep conviction, that others might come to know the gift of salvation as we have. We pray that you'd help us with this for Christ's sake. Amen.